Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as you I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Does this sound familiar? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Bless the reading of God's word. Thank you very much. I apologize in advance for any toes I step on this morning, because <laughs> this is just a rough this is just a rough text, y'all. <laughs> uh, for anybody to look at, uh, somebody already came to me this morning and said, "I read the text in advance." <laughs> oh, the word of the Lord is good, and we welcome His uh, chastisement in our own lives. Let's pray together, and we'll uh, we'll dive into this passage. Lord, we want to thank you for everything you do. And we want to thank you for your work in our lives. We want to thank you for your work here at the Church of Sunsites, here in our community, in the Sulphur Springs Valley. Lord, in our county and in our state, in our nation and world, we want to thank you for all the work you are doing. Uh, We know that you work all things together. There are many things in the world we don't like. But Lord, we know that uh, you are working all things together for our good, the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And when there is evil in the world, Lord, we know that what people mean for evil, you mean for good. Lord, we ask you to... uh, Give us eyes to see this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand what you have to say. Lord, through the proclamation of your word, conform us more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we love you so much. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for giving us a place in your kingdom. We long to see the day when your kingdom is consummated on this earth. Lord, we love you. And in Jesus' name, amen. 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 (laughs) Well, Paul has uh, been writing to the church at Corinth, and this church is a church full of uh, division, a division brought on by immaturity in the faith. Uh, The church at Corinth is puffed up with 
knowledge or what it perceives to be knowledge, but Paul has thus far referred to that as worldly wisdom, the knowledge of the world rather than the wisdom of God, uh, the knowledge of, of God. And today he really gets at what the wisdom of the world is and what it means to be immature in the faith. As I observe the world today, um, and the evangelical church is not excluded from this, uh, neither is the Reformed church, neither is, uh, neither is any denomination therein. Um, I see a lot of immaturity in, in the things of the faith, in the spiritual things, so the things that are imperishable like we talked about last week. Um, I, I seem to observe people getting caught up in worldly wisdom. Um, not to say that uh, we shouldn't be informed about the things of the world. We should be informed about those things and we should um, participate in uh, the cultural things happening in our time, the, the, the politics and the advancement of religion and charity. And we should uh, be able to speak to social things that are happening, uh, cultural things that are, that are happening. But as we discovered last week, those, those things are much better slaves than they are masters. Um, we, as, as Christians, we, we have something that is imperishable. Uh, one day the politics of our time will be dead and they, they won't matter anymore. But the gospel will never die. Uh, one day the religions of our day will be dead because no one will practice them anymore. But the gospel will always be, and God will always be, and so will His people, and we will be with Him. So the challenge for us is to invest in godly knowledge, godly wisdom, to be spiritually mature, uh, to know the truth about God, but not, not merely know about God, but to know God. So this morning, as we look into this text, I, I really want us all to be thinking about our maturity in the faith. Um, we all we all believe ourselves to be mature. Um, that is natural. <laughs> um, it's natural because we simply don't know what we don't know. Um, and, you know, we haven't learned that yet. And, and if somebody has tried to explain it to us, that little light switch hasn't been turned on yet. Um, so we are often ignorant of our immaturity. But as we read through Scripture, particularly here First 1 Corinthians, as Paul is addressing a church that is very immature but believes itself to be mature, it's puffed up with its knowledge and its, and its doctrine, um, he, he tells the church, no, you're actually immature, and this is how you know you are actually immature in the faith. So as we, as we look into today's text, just be prepared right now to wrestle with that. Uh, this is what I have been wrestling with in my own life all week, uh, and, and this is a, <laughs> it's a self-reflection filled with much, uh, much inner turmoil, but it is for our good. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. We'll see this text in two parts. Verses 1 through 4, we'll see what, what Paul feels like as he pastors infants in the faith when he served for a year and a half as the pastor of the church at Corinth during his second missionary journey. What he felt like pastoring infants in the faith, uh, baby Christians. And in verses 5 through 9, uh, we'll see um, what it means for any pastor or elder to be a a pastor 
gardener, someone who tends to God's field. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I, this is Paul speaking, and I, brethren, could not, this is when he served as pastor in Corinth for the year and a half that he did, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. I, I want to notice a couple things here. Uh, first of all, the church at Corinth is puffed up in its knowledge. It's divided over, over things concerning knowledge, things they are informed about. Uh, they are divided over the teachings of Paul and the teachings of, of Apollos, and, and some of them are, are even using the teachings of, of Christ to cause division between Apollos and Paul and, and Christ. So there, there are like three different denominations forming in this church, and the only reason that happens is because we fight about what? Uh, knowledge, what we know, what we, what we, what we, what we perceive to be true, what we believe, our personal doctrines, and we fight over words, and we war about words, and we we wrangle about words and myths, and that's what is happening in the church uh, of Corinth, Um, and Paul here drops a huge bombshell on him, he says, when I was there, I gave you spiritual milk because you were not able to handle the meat, you were not able to receive real godly wisdom, the depth of godly wisdom, because you're still fleshly people. What do you think it means, the people in the church at Corinth, the membership there, that they were unable to receive deep spiritual things, that they were unable to, to feast on on the full meal of God's, God's Word and the, and the depth of the Scriptures? I think it simply means that they were so focused on the knowledge of the world, the politics of their day, and the religion of their day, that they they did not look to Christ. They did not care to know deep spiritual things, the imperishable, because they were so caught up in in the moment, the things that seemed to matter to them right, right in that moment, at, the, at that time, and those minutes, things that seemed earth-shattering, even though those things would die, there was no foresight. They couldn't zoom out and say, you know what, this stuff is only temporary, uh, so let's focus on Christ. Instead, they, they were. They were focused on, oh, oh my gosh, look at the circumstances we're living in. And... And, and look at who the emperor is. And look at the synagogue of Satan coming at us. And look at this, look at this persecution. And look, our brothers and sisters are being martyred. And then that was the, that was the stuff in their line of sight. And they, they couldn't, couldn't seem to look past that to the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he was doing through it all. Brothers and sisters, I have to be honest with you this morning. There is much in the world that I hate. There's much in the world that I, that I hate with a passion. But woe to me if that is my singular focus. 
Because if that's my singular focus, who am I not focusing on? That is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the one. So the church at Corinth is puffed up with its, with its knowledge, and this isn't a godly knowledge. This is knowledge about worldly things. It's, it's puffed up. Haughtiness of, of knowledge is, is not a good thing. I was talking with someone else this morning, and they said, you know, it really is true. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Yes? If we are sincere in our pursuit of, of knowledge, it's knowledge brings humility, not haughtiness. Our identity cannot be in our depth of knowledge about any anything. And what we know about God is given as a gift, because clearly there are some who are not able not able a statement of ability to take in the deep things of the faith the things leading to real Christian spiritual maturity the second thing I want to notice in these first couple of verses Paul does not condemn this church he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth So he doesn't say, you're haughty in your knowledge, Uh, you're actually very immature in the faith, Uh, you're not actually focusing on the things of God at all, the things that are spiritual and imperishable, you're not focusing on on those things at all. Uh, What does Paul say? Well, damn you. No, he does not. Instead, Paul chooses to reason with them. We were talking in uh, the podcast that we do for the church every Tuesday. I get with uh, PA and Ken, and, and we talk about things presented in the sermon from Sunday, and it's like a conversational thing, and our podcast is called The Blacktop Pulpit. I, I encourage you to check that out, because uh, they bring things up to me that I don't even consider when I'm preparing the sermon, and then we talk about those things and really really uh, bring the application. You can find that on Facebook and on the church website. Uh, look, puffed up when you're hiding. Look at that. Uh, <laughs> But this last week, we were talking about the the condescension of Jesus Christ. Now, normally when we talk about somebody being condescending, um, we don't... We don't clarify that, like, we don't define what we mean by that, but we mean it in a very negative way, don't we? Like, I, I am being, being very condescending of someone else. I am, I am descending them with those other people, con with descend, descending, right? I, I, am, I am making them out to be less of a person than they are. I'm being condescending of someone else. When we think about the condescension of Christ, though, he did exactly the opposite. He condescended to us. He descended to be with us, right? And Paul, here to the church at Corinth, and even when he served the church at Corinth for a year and a half, he said, I talk to you in worldly terms because that's what you needed. You needed milk, so I gave you milk. Paul actually condescended to, instead of con- condemning them, being condescending of them, he, he came down to their level. He actually condescended. Like, that's the example that we, we receive here in this text. And Paul could have been haughty in his knowledge. He certainly knew much more than the believers at Corinth, especially concerning spiritual things. He's, he was about to sit on the Sanhedrin. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how much spiritual knowledge Paul, Paul had. He gave that up, of course, to follow Christ. And when he speaks to this church, he doesn't teach them like some spiritual guru, like people should worship him or idolize him or put him on a pedestal. No, he, he brought himself down to their level, which amazes me. 
that sort of example amazes me because it is so tempting to be puffed up in our knowledge, to be haughty in our knowledge, to think, yes, I know. And I can see someone else's spiritual immaturity, but instead of taking the time to really live with them, to, to be with the, those people, right? No. We're family. And we're all in Christ. And with family, I don't know, like raising a son or daughter or grandchild, you don't, you don't say, no, I'm not going to get down to your level. No, we lose every sense <laughs> of our adulthood when we are around a child, don't we? We lose every sense. Of it's, it's gone. I'll become even more undignified than this. Just let a baby in the room, right? And, I, and all, of a sudden, all of a sudden, I'm a baby too. Like, uh, Paul is getting at the same thing. Like, you needed milk, so I gave you milk. Paul wants to know where his audience is. He wants to know where his congregation is. And, he, and he, goes, he goes to them. He doesn't expect them to, hey, come listen to me. No, he, he goes to them. And that's just the basic truth of evangelism. When, when Christ gave us the Great Commission, what did he say? All authority has been given to me, therefore, what's the next word? <laughs> Go. <laughs> Don't. Uh, all authority has been given to me, therefore, sit in your ivory tower and expect people to come to you. And that's not what he said. Go. Go be with people. Condescend yourself. Condescend to others. Don't be condescending of others. We're doing one or the other as we live life. So Paul does not condemn, but he, but he condescends to them. They are still fleshly, so he was speaking to them in fleshly terms. And here he says, not only were you fleshly then, not only were you spiritual infants then, not able to take in the meat of the faith, but you are still this way. That's why I'm writing you this letter. And I'm doing the same thing now I did then. You still need the spiritual milk. You still need the, you still need the basics. And, and I don't think Paul's being like, you're such a baby. I, I think it's, this is more out of love. Like this, Paul planted the church in, in the home of Titius Justice. This church is Paul's baby. He, he, he planted this church. Of course, we know God's the one doing the work, which Paul plainly explains later in this passage. I think Paul's like fatherly, like, I, I believe you're Christians. I believe you're in Christ. I believe you're elect. But let me nurture you a little more. You, it's time to grow up now. You never had to say that to any child ever, right? It's time for you to grow up. <laughs> yeah, and I think Paul's doing the same thing here. Like, some time has gone by, and Paul's like, hey, time for you to grow up. Continuing in verse 3, 4, since there is... Paul's about to give the evidence of their immaturity. Like if we're, we're puffed up and we're haughty in our knowledge, the, la- the furthest thing from our thoughts is, I must be immature. No, no, if we're haughty in our knowledge, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm mature. I'm the most mature person in the room. If you have to say it. (laughs) Here's the evidence. Paul says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? 
The division is evidence. The jealousy is evidence. And this jealousy is like, this is, this is not righteous jealousy like a man has for his wife. I'll, I'll tell you, I am jealous for my wife. And if somebody starts, uh, even just the smallest flirt, like automatically I want to punch that person in the face. So righteous jealousy. I, I asked my wife to marry me. She said yes, and we have a covenant together, and this is forever. No, you cannot do that to my wife. Righteous jealousy. The same type of jealousy Christ has for His church. Did you know Christ is jealous for you? That if anybody tries to touch Christ's church, Christ has at least some words to say if He doesn't take action against that person. I believe that. I believe Scripture tells us about that. Christ is jealous for His church. He fights for His church. He will not let His church go. In a way, men, Christ sets, not in a way, this is explicit, He he sets the example for us as men to live as a man of God, a Christian man. You know, maybe maybe around here you'll appreciate this a little bit more than somewhere else. This is a like God calls us to to ruggedness. <laughs> yeah, calls us to strength. Causes us um, calls us to to sacrifice ourselves, to die for our families, to never let them go, to pour into them, to be jealous for them. But the jealousy Paul is talking about here is not that kind of jealousy, is it? This is an envy. This is a jealousy that exists among siblings fighting in a home. That's my toy. You're getting more recognition than me. You don't... You're getting more recognition than me and I've done more than you. Why does, why does that guy get to preach every Sunday? <laughs> Why don't, why don't I receive more phone calls than other people? Yeah, I'm smarter than that guy. Why, why don't I have a Sunday school class? I, I'm the best preacher in town. Everybody should come here and And nobody else is doing the work of God. This is the only healthy church anywhere. Jealousy. Sibling rival. That's not healthy. That's not healthy for anyone. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, that's what's going on in the church at Corinth. Strife, jealousy, jealousy leading to strife. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere Men, now I want to expose what what Paul means when he talks about envy, this type of jealousy, when he talks about envy a a little more. And first we see Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. And, and this verse maybe doesn't explicitly get at envy. 
But it does get at the way Christ calls us to live, which is exactly the opposite. Matthew sixteen twenty four through 26 Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If our participation with the body of Christ is all about me getting something from other people, all about somebody giving all of their time to to me, all about me benefiting from ministries that are designed around me, that's that's envious church and it leads to strife and it leads to division within the church body what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world people everywhere are using church to try to gain the whole world are they not people everywhere building their own kingdoms on Christ's back worldly like programmatic ministry gets at this I don't have a problem with youth ministry if it is biblical but so many forms of youth ministry build a youth ministry around the preferences of of worldly youth in order to attract them we do want to reach students with the gospel of Jesus Christ and we want them to respond. But listen, Christ is the center. He is the one who does the work. And much about the way the modern day church does ministry, it's built on envy, which according to Paul leads to strife and is exactly against the way that Christ has called us to live our lives. Instead of saying, hey, you, come to church. We have exactly what you like. That's not a gospel invitation. Instead of that, we say, hey, you've fallen short of the glory of God. God has given the evidence in His Bible. Has It's time now to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a gospel invitation. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when there is repentance, God brings men and women of faith to deny themselves, to take up their crosses and follow Him such that we are no longer interested in gaining the whole world. Because when we are interested in gaining the whole world, we forfeit our souls. That's the teaching of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing from selfishness. That's a tall order. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's tough. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced that we cannot do that. Like everyone we interact with, that person's more important than me. If somebody else is more important than me, am I ever going to be complaining about them? No. <laughs> right? 
but to a lifestyle like always considering others to be more important than ourselves. That's what defines the Christian life. That's what the Holy Spirit moves us toward. The more we are conformed to Christ, the more our lives reflect, reflect that, considering others to be more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, which means it's not actually wrong for me to look out for my own personal interests. If, if I have a dream that God has given me, I can pursue that. That's, that's gracious on God's part, isn't it? but also for the interests of others, which means I consider the interests of others to be just as important, if not more important, than my own interests. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the way Jesus lived, who although He existed in the form of God, this is the condescension of Christ right here, or the kenosis, which means emptying, the emptying of Jesus Christ. Although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. If that's the way Jesus Lived, And if that's the way Jesus currently does ministry, condescending to others, are, are we not to be like Christ, our Lord? If we follow Him, are we not to, to do what He did? To be like Him? To be conformed to His very image? Yes, we are. And jealousy leads to strife. And in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, James wrote, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your lusts, your desires that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you see how James chases strife in the church among Christians? A strife is another word for conflict, division, tension. <laughs> he traces that back to human desire. Even to envy. And he says, if your desire, envy comes from desire too, right? Like your, your desire brings you into sin, brings you into envy, causes strife. And James goes as far as to say, like, and if that is your life, if that is the way you live, always contentious, always ready to, to quarrel, especially within the body of believers. James goes as, as far to call us enemies of God. How? Jealousy and strife. 
And because the church at Corinth is jealous and jealousy, this envy leads to strife, Paul says, are you not fleshly? What does it mean to live like a like a fleshly person. Now we're all flesh and blood. I, I don't have a, I don't have a choice there, <laughs> right? This is the kind of verse the Gnostics would take and say, "See, flesh bad, beat it into submission." But that's not what Paul is getting at. How do we understand what Paul means when he says, uh, talks about living according to the flesh? Look with me at Romans chapter eight, verses five through eight. Another of Paul's letters. For those who are, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. That sounds familiar. But those who are, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And there are two, two types of people in the world. Those with worldly knowledge, people of the flesh. Those who might know about God, but don't know God, and they invest in what is perishable rather than is imperishable. That's fleshly living, worldly living. And then there are those who are of the Spirit, born again, according to John chapter 3. They are born of the Spirit and therefore are able to see the kingdom of heaven. And having the Spirit, they pursue the things of the Spirit. These two ways of living are diametrically opposed. There's no meshing them together. I, I, I either have the Spirit and I'm in Christ and I desire godly knowledge and godly pursuit and godly living and I desire that and it comes naturally or I am of the flesh and this other knowledge, worldly knowledge is, is, is my content and is my God. There's no, you can't serve both God and man. You, you can't be a part of the kingdom of, of Christ, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. Look, we must choose. And God is the one who enables us to choose. And when He calls us and brings us into His kingdom, we die to that other stuff. We die to the knowledge of the world and the ways of the world. For the mind set on the flesh is death. What am I going, what's my life going to be like if, if all I'm focused on, like this is my Lord, everything happening in the world right now that eventually will perish, the perishable. If that is my Lord, if that is my master, if that is the content of my living and the content of everything that I say, well, Paul says here, that's death for you. One, it feels like you're dead when, <laughs> while you're still living, right? Because you're always concerned about all the things that you hate in the world. There's plenty to hate. But if that's our Lord, if that's our Master, it's, it's like we're walking dead people. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. <laughs> oh, especially starting this year, right? Especially starting, I don't know, right around January. How can you have any peace, Christian? In the midst of all the evil in the world, in the, in the midst of persecution worldwide, and in the midst of evil governments in the world pushing evil agendas, how, O oh Christian, can you have peace? Because of the Spirit. The Spirit is life and peace. 
in the midst of death culture, the Spirit is life and peace. Now what a beautiful promise. If you have the Spirit, life and peace in the midst of a world that thrives on death. And when the world, you have, you have people who are conservative but without Christ, right? Right now in the world, you, you see conservative without Christ. It's just people killing themselves over what's happening in the world. But if you have Christ, life and peace. That's cool. Quite a different way to approach everything in the world. It's, it really is quite beautiful. And I, I hope this morning that you experience that kind of peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. And that's the real reason it's, it's death. The real reason people of the world, worldly people, understand this whole time I haven't been talking about political parties and I'm not bringing that into this, okay? That's not, that's not the goal this morning. All worldly people, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum, all worldly people, their, their minds, their, their very basic way of thinking, hostile toward God. You want to know why worldly people make some of the decisions they do? Hostile toward God. The reason for such evil in the world, there's hostility toward God. And the reason people are walking around but seem, seem dead, like hearts of stone... It's because of hostility toward God. If people weren't hostile toward God, it'd be roses. Or since we're a Reformed Church, I could say tulips. <laughs> if you understood that, great. Awesome. For it, the mind of the flesh, does not subject itself to the law of God. Instead, what does it do? Justifies itself, explains away. God didn't really mean that, right? For it is not even able to do so. Able. There it is again, the statement of ability. It's not even able to subject itself to God. There's only one thing that causes us to be able to subject ourselves to the law of God, and that's being born again by the Spirit. And those who are in the flesh cannot, statement of ability, cannot please God. They're, they're lost. That's the definition of depravity. Cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't please God unless you're in the Spirit. That's what Paul is getting at. Paul does that in all of his letters, by the way. He, like, he begins with that and then he'll get to the application a little later. That's the spiritual truth we are working with. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes to his student and he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No, so, Paul is comparing the Christian life to a soldier at war, to a military op. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. He wouldn't be able to go to war if he did. Yeah, singular focus, mission. That's how Paul describes the Christian life, like, like we're at war or something. Are we at war, brothers and sisters? 
We don't fight wars like the world does, though, do we? No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier and who enlisted us. Christ. If Christ enlisted us and our orders came from Christ, those are the orders we follow. Entangling ourselves in all of these other things. The things of the world. That's fleshly. We are to be about the mission of our, of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Because the church at Corinth is, there's envious in their midst, and this envy leads to strife, and because of these things, they are walking fleshly. They are, they are walking like mere men. I know there's no such thing as super Christian. <laughs> Impossible. Don't even try. <laughs> you can't be super Christian. But if we have the Spirit, we, we don't walk like mere men. There's some power there that, that people without the Spirit don't have. The power to, power to deny self. Power to think about what is imperishable rather than what is perishable. Power to improve our, our focus and our, and our foresight. And it's, it's because we care about the things of the Spirit, the things of God, the wisdom of God, the deep things of faith. Our participation in the local church, including the Sunday gathering, but also any other time we can get plugged in, what, what does that do? It equips us not to be mere men and live like the world lives. Like, that's real for life. People think, oh, I'm going to go to church and just know a little bit about Jesus, and I'm going to go home and just, and just be happy, you know, this is cool, and whether they come to church out of obligation or because, oh, I, yeah, I kind of like this. Um, no, the gathering, the fellowship, the apostles' teaching... It's not, just, it's not just theory. It's not just hypothetical stuff we're talking about here. Like, this is real. It's raw and it's rugged. And it hurts because God is perfecting us through it. And it means something for the way we live. You can go to, can go to a worldly counselor or psychologist all day, but you won't get this. Worldly psychologists. I was trained in this, so I know. They'll, they'll sit back in the chair. Nice little notepad. No technology in the room. You leave the phones outside, turn the recording on so I can listen to it later, and somebody walks into the office, takes the other chair, and I say, all right, tell me everything you want to tell me. And you know what we're trained to do in psychology as, as counselors? We're trained to trace back family histories and experiences to know how someone grew up. And, and we're taking all this information down and somebody came in because I'm just not happy with life. And as counselors, or when I was in counseling training, you teach somebody like this, figure out what caused them to be unhappy and help them figure out their own answers about how they need to adjust their own lives in order to experience happiness again. And then you look at the Bible, and it's like exactly the opposite. Like deny yourself, take up your cross, man up, woman up. And, and as far as I can tell, those who follow biblical advice are better off in life. Amen. 
all of life. Like, this is real. This isn't hypothetical. There's jealousy and strife. You are not walking like mere men. For one says, I am of Paul. This is the division. I am of Paul. And another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? You're focusing on that? You're focusing on where I and Apollos disagree on something that's probably like, you know, ivory tower theological. Like, uh, I disagree with quite a few theologians on quite a few things, but I guarantee that's no reason to divide. (laughs) Okay? If somebody is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, welcome to the family. You're not mere men. Verses 5 through 9. The pastor's role in all this, the elder's role in all this. Paul's talking about his own example here. So this applies directly to pastor, teachers, elders, and the church. But then it also applies to the congregations. So the congregation knows, like, this is how a pastor is supposed to relate to the church. Paul's giving us the answer. <sighs> he starts, what is Apollos? <laughs> and what is Paul? Servants, slaves, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And Paul illustrates this using like a, a garden illustration, garden language, gardening language. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Now this is humbling for the man standing in the pulpit. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Nothing. We get pretty caught up in our Christian celebrity pastors, don't we? You know, it's not a very Christian way to to live and to think about anyone who is a pastor, theologian. No, the, the pastor is nothing. You know, I am I am nothing standing here before you. Well, the only thing that I'm the only thing that I'm doing is working hard at preaching and teaching the word God has given. Like I'm not even here to give you my own words. Right? That's not important. God's word is. I'm nothing. Paul says, Why are you worshiping me? Why are you worshiping Apollos? We're, we're, we're nothing. God's the one who gave you growth. God's the one who granted you the opportunity, the ability to even hear the gospel and understand it and respond. Like, that's God. Why aren't you focused on him rather than Paul and Apollos? The same is true for us. There are many people today who worship, idolize many different pastors, ranging from. Uh, all over the theological spectrum, right? Ranging from, from John MacArthur to, to David Jeremiah to Stephen Furtick to Craig Rochelle. And some people get really serious about their idolatry. Spurgeon. <laughs> Calvin. Yeah, I like some of those guys. I learn a lot from some of those guys. But I dare not idolize them. 
Now, some people idolize the pastor at their local church and put him up on a pedestal. You realize that causes strife. If, if, if you're idolizing a pastor rather than worshiping God, you're, you're never going to fit in at a church. Unless you go to the church of the guy you idolize. Then no matter what is said, you're like, yeah, amen. Right? That's tough for us in America because we really like our celebrities. But understand, the way the world treats celebrities is not how the church treats anyone. The preacher is nothing. The teacher is nothing but a slave of God. God causes the growth Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one. Now wait, Paul is not Apollos and Apollos is not Paul. How can the one who plants and the one who waters, how can they be one? What Paul means to say here is that they are doing a singular work. Every preacher, now this is cool to think about, every preacher, sincere, genuine not, not, not heretical, okay? Every preacher in every pulpit around the world this morning is preaching the Word of God. One, we stand united around the whole world. The church stands united on Sunday morning. Now that's cool to think about. One, one work, one heart, one spirit, one proclamation, one message, one gospel going out around the whole world. Wow! We are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are one, we're doing the same work. But not every preacher commits to the labor to the same degree. That is the preacher's labor in this life. To work hard at preaching and teaching, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul says, don't you dare muzzle the ox while he's treading out grain, preaching the, real, the true gospel. Don't muzzle the ox. He's, he is worthy of his wages. This is our labor in earth. And here Paul says, you know, not only is he worthy of his wages on the earth, you know, I, I make a living by doing this and working really hard doing this. But Paul also says, each one receives his own reward according to his own labor, like there's a wage to be earned in the resurrection as well. Working hard, preaching and teaching. And I don't, I don't have a problem saying that we are saved by grace alone, but by our labor in the kingdom we earn a wage. I don't, I don't have a problem saying that. I think Jesus teaches that in his parables. And I think in the very next passage, Paul is going to get at that. But yeah, you'll have to wait till next week. Is that all right? There's a teaser. Come back next week. (laughs) For we are God's fellow workers. There Paul referring to himself and Apollos, God's missionaries. Pastors, elders, we are God's fellow workers. You, the local church, you are God's field, God's building. Now, what happens when when a gardener or a farmer plant seed what's the process what's the first step Mm. no seed you can't water it (laughs) yeah prepare the till the ground oh well that sounds painful turn over the soil get rid of the status quo go against the grain (laughs) 
Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Turn it over. Wreak havoc on the soil so you can loosen it up, prepare it, and then put nutrients in the soil, plant the seed, water that seed, the plant starts to grow. And eventually, what's the goal? Harvest. Fruit bearing, right? Well, there's the relationship between a pastor and the church. And the pastor is God's gardener in the local church. Every, every pastor, every preacher, every elder around the world pastoring the church. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. God, God gave us for this purpose. Till the ground, plant the seed, water the seed. God provides the growth. And then God's church, the priests of God's kingdom, everyone bears fruit for the kingdom, bears fruit of the kingdom. That's the process here. And Paul says, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. How cool is that? And when a plant reaches maturity, it bears more fruit. And, you know, every illustration falls short because some of the plants actually become gardeners. (laughs) That's impossible in a real garden, but in the kingdom of God, like, that's what's happening. And that's what we want. We want maturity in the faith, and we want the depth of the knowledge about the things of God. Somebody asked this question, and I'll say this in closing. As we started out this series, we asked you to be reading 1 Corinthians and asking any questions, and someone sent this question in. Do Christians still live in sin and despair when they do not follow the leading of the Spirit and power of God? Is it possible for Christians to still live in sin and despair? This passage indicates... Yeah. Yep. You can know Christ. You can be in Christ. But still be a spiritual infant. And some people live for years having confessed Christ and still spiritual infants. Jealousy and strife. Pursuing the knowledge of the world rather than the things of Christ. This would describe like that sort of lone wolf Christianity type. The, the drifter kind of Christianity, right? Yeah. If you are still in the flesh, still living according to the ways of the world, and, and that's the content, the, the stuff of the world, and that's what we idolize, and that's what we worship, we take the self-inventory, and it's, we either don't know Christ, or we are spiritual infants. It should be the case, it ought to be the case, that the longer we live as Christians, the more we desire spiritual hmm, steak, ribeye. Okay? That's true for every Christian. And that, I think, is what Paul's getting at here. And, and in a way, he's, he's admonishing the, the church at Corinth. Like, it is time to grow up.